Act One of The Doctor's Dilemma. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Doctor's Dilemma by George Bernard Shaw. Dramatis Personae. Red Penny. Read by Derek Powell. Emmy. Read by A. Mallon. Colenso Ridgen. Read by Bruce Peary. Schutzmacher. Read by John Steigerwald. Sir Patrick Cullen. Read by Algy Pug. Cutler Walpole. Read by Elizabeth Clett. Bibi. Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington. Read by Phil Chenevere. Dr. Blankensop. Read by M. B. Mrs. Jennifer Dubedat. Read by Ariel Lipshaw. The part of Lewis played by Anthony. The Maid. Read by Rashada. The Newspaper Man. Read by David Lawrence. The Secretary. Read by Peter Bishop. Narrated by Elizabeth Clett. Act One. On the 15th of June, 1903, in the early forenoon, a medical student, surname Redpenny, Christian name unknown and of no importance, sits at work in a doctor's consulting room. He devils for the doctor by answering his letters, acting as his domestic laboratory assistant, and making himself indispensable generally, in return for unspecified advantages involved by intimate intercourse with a leader of his profession, and amounting to an informal apprenticeship and a temporary affiliation. Redpenny is not proud, and will do anything he is asked without reservation of his personal dignity if he is asked in a fellow-creaturely way. He is a wide-open-eyed, ready, credulous, friendly, hasty youth, with his hair and clothes in reluctant transition from the untidy boy to the tidy doctor. Redpenny is interrupted by the entrance of an old serving-woman who has never known the cares, the preoccupations, the responsibilities, jealousies, and anxieties of personal beauty. She has the complexion of never-washed gypsy, incurable by any detergent, and she has, not a regular beard and moustaches, which could at least be trimmed and waxed into a masculine presentableness, but a whole crop of small beards and moustaches, mostly springing from moles all over her face. She carries a duster and toddles about meddlesomely, spying out dust so diligently that whilst she is flicking off one speck she is already looking elsewhere for another. In conversation she has the same trick hardly ever looking at the person she is addressing except when she is excited. She has only one manner, and that is the manner of an old family nurse to a child just after it has learnt to walk. She has used her ugliness to secure indulgences unattainable by Cleopatra or fair Rosamond, and has the further great advantage over them that age increases her qualification instead of impairing it. Being an industrious, agreeable, and popular old soul, she is a walking sermon on the vanity of feminine prettiness. Just as Redpenny has no discovered Christian name, she has no discovered surname, and is known throughout the doctor's quarter between Cavendish Square and the Marlebin Road simply as Emmy. The consulting room has two windows looking on Queen Anne Street. Between the two is a marble-topped console, with haunched gilt legs ending in sphinx claws. The huge pier-glass which surmounts it is mostly disabled from reflection by elaborate painting on its surface of palms, ferns, lilies, tulips, and sunflowers. The adjoining wall contains the fireplace, with two armchairs before it. 
as we happen to face the corner we see nothing of the other two walls on the right of the fireplace or rather on the right of any person facing the fireplace is the door on its left is the writing-table at which redpenny sits it is an untidy table with a microscope several test-tubes and a spirit-lamp standing up through its litter of papers there is a couch in the middle of the room at right angles to the console and parallel to the fireplace a chair stands between the couch and the windowed wall the windows have green venetian blinds and rep curtains and there is a gasolier but it is a convert to electric lighting the wallpaper and carpets are mostly green coeval with the gasolier and the venetian blinds the house in fact was so well furnished in the middle of the nineteenth century that it stands unaltered to this day and is still quite presentable emmy entering and immediately beginning to dust the couch there's a lady bothering me to see the doctor well she can't see the doctor look here what's the use of telling you that the doctor can't take any new patients when the moment a knock comes to the door in you bounce to ask whether he can see somebody who asked you whether he could see somebody you did i said there's a lady bothering me to see the doctor that isn't asking it's telling well is the lady bothering you any reason for you to come bothering me when i'm busy have you seen the papers no not seen the birthday honors what the now now ducky what do you suppose i care about the birthday honors get out of this with your chattering dr ridgeon will be down before i have these letters ready get out dr ridgeon won't never be down any more young man she detects dust on the console and is down on it immediately redpenny jumping up and following her what he's been made a knight mind you don't go dr ridgening him in them letters sir colenso ridgen is to be his name now i'm jolly glad i never was so taken aback i always thought his great discoveries was fudge let alone the mess of them with his drops of blood and tubes full of maltese fever and the like now he'll have a rare laugh at me serve you right it was like your cheek to talk to him about science he returns to his table and resumes his writing Ugh, i don't think much of science and neither will you when you've lived as long with it as i have what's on my mind is answering the door old sir patrick cullen has been here already and left first congratulations hadn't time to come up on his way to the hospital but was determined to be first coming back he said all the rest will be here too the knocker will be going all day what i'm afraid of is that the doctor will want a footman like all the rest now that he's sir colenso mind don't you go putting him up to it ducky for he'll never have any comfort with anybody but me to answer the door i know who to let in and who to keep out and that reminds me of the poor lady i think he ought to see her she's just the kind that puts him in a good temper she dusts red penny's papers i tell you he can't see anybody do go away emmy how can i work with you dusting all over me like this i'm not hindering you working if you call writing letters working oh there goes the bell she looks out of the window a doctor's carriage that's more congratulations 
She is going out when Sir Colenso Ridgeon enters. Have you finished your two eggs, Sonny? Yes. Have you put on your clean vest? Yes. That's my ducky diamond. Now keep yourself tidy and don't go messing about and dirtying your hands. The people are coming to congratulate you. She goes out. Sir Colenso Ridgeon is a man of fifty who has never shaken off his youth. He has the off-handed manner and the little audacities of address which a sly and sensitive man acquires in breaking himself in to intercourse with all sorts and conditions of men. His face is a good deal lined, his movements are slower than, for instance, red pennies, and his flaxen hair has lost its lustre, but in figure and manner he is more the young man than the titled physician. Even the lines in his face are those of overwork and restless scepticism, perhaps partly of curiosity and appetite, rather than of age. Just at present the announcement of his knighthood in the morning papers makes him specially self-conscious, and consequently specially off-hand with Redpenny. "'Have you seen the papers? You'll have to alter the name in the letters if you haven't.' "'Emmy has just told me. I'm awfully glad. I—' "'Enough, young man, enough. You will soon get accustomed to it.' They ought to have done it years ago. They would have, only they couldn't stand Emmy opening the door, I dare say. Emmy, at the door, announces Dr. Shoemaker. She withdraws. A middle-aged gentleman, well-dressed, comes in with a friendly but propitiatory air, not quite sure of his reception. His combination of soft manners and responsive kindliness, with a certain unseizable reserve and a familiar yet foreign chiselling of feature, reveal the Jew. In this instance the handsome gentlemanly Jew, gone a little pigeon-breasted and stale after thirty, as handsome young Jews often do, but still decidedly good-looking. "'Do you remember me? Schutzmacher, University College School and Belsize Avenue. Looney Schutzmacher, you know.' "'What? Looney!' He shakes hands cordially. "'Why, man, I thought you were dead long ago. Sit down.' Schutzmacher sits on the couch. Ridgen on the chair between it and the window. Where have you been these thirty years? In general practice until a few months ago. I've retired. Well done, Looney. I wish I could afford to retire. Was your practice in London? No. Fashionable coast practice, I suppose? How could I afford to buy a fashionable practice? I hadn't a rap. I set up in a manufacturing town in the Midlands, in a little surgery at ten shillings a week. And made your fortune? Well, I'm pretty comfortable. I have a place in Hertfordshire, besides our flat in town. If you ever want a quiet Saturday to Monday, I'll take you down in my motor at an hour's notice. Just rolling in money. I wish you rich GPs would teach me how to make some. What's the secret of it? Oh, in my case the secret was simple enough. Though I suppose I should have got into trouble if it had attracted any notice. And I'm afraid you'll think it rather infradig. Oh, I have an open mind. What was the secret? Well, the secret was just two words. Not consultation-free, was it? No, no, really. No, of course not. I was only joking. My two words were simply cure guaranteed. Cure guaranteed? Guaranteed. After all, that's what everybody wants from a doctor, isn't it? My dear Looney, it was an inspiration. Was it on the brass plate? There was no brass plate. It was a shop window. Red, you know, with black lettering. Dr. Leo Schutzmacher, 
L-R-C-P-M-R-C-S. Advice and medicine sixpence. Cure guaranteed. And the guarantee proved sound nine times out of ten, eh? Oh, much oftener than that. You see, most people get well all right if they are careful and you give them a little sensible advice. And the medicine really did them good. Perishes chemical food. Phosphates, you know. One tablespoon to a twelve-ounce bottle of water. Nothing better, no matter what the case is. Red Penny, make a note of Parrish's chemical food. I take it myself, you know, when I feel run down. Goodbye. You don't mind my calling, do you? Just to congratulate you. Delighted, my dear Looney. Come to lunch on Saturday next week. Bring your motor and take me down to Hartford. I will. We shall be delighted. Thank you. Goodbye. He goes out with Ridgeon, who returns immediately. Old Paddy Cullen was here before you were up to be the first to congratulate you. Indeed. Who taught you to speak of Sir Patrick Cullen as Old Paddy Cullen, you young ruffian? You never call him anything else. Not now that I am Sir Colenso. Next thing you fellows will be calling me Old Collie Ridgeon. We do, at St. Anne's. Yeah, that's what makes the medical student the most disgusting figure in modern civilization. No veneration, no manners, no— Emmy, at the door, announcing— Sir Patrick Cullen. She retires. Sir Patrick Cullen is more than twenty years older than Ridgeon, not yet quite at the end of his tether, but near it, and resigned to it. His name, his plain, downright, sometimes rather arid common sense, his large build and stature, the absence of those odd moments of ceremonial servility by which an old English doctor sometimes shows you what the status of the profession was in England in his youth, and an occasional turn of speech, are Irish. But he has lived all his life in England, and is thoroughly acclimatized. His manner to Ridgeon, whom he likes, is whimsical and fatherly. To others he is a little gruff and uninviting apt to substitute more or less expressive grunts for articulate speech, and generally indisposed, at his age, to make much social effort. He shakes Ridgeon's hand and beams at him cordially and jocularly. "'Well, young chap, is your hat too small for you, eh?' "'Much too small. I owe it all to you.' "'Blarney, me boy. Thank you all the same.' He sits in one of the armchairs near the fireplace. Ridgeon sits on the couch. I've come to talk to you a bit. To Redpenny. Young man, get out. Certainly, Sir Patrick. He collects his papers and makes for the door. Thank you. That's a good lad. Redpenny vanishes. They all put up with me, these young chaps, because I'm an old man, a real old man, not like you. You're only beginning to give yourselves the airs of age. Did you ever see a boy cultivating a moustache? Well, a middle-aged doctor cultivating a grey head is much the same sort of spectacle. Good Lord, yes, I suppose so. And I thought that the days of my vanity were past. Tell me, at what age does a man leave off being a fool? Remember the Frenchman who asked his grandmother at what age we get free from the temptations of love. The old woman said she didn't know. <laughs> well, I make you the same answer. But the world's growing very interesting to me now, Collie. You keep up your interest in science, do you? Lord, yes. Modern science is a wonderful thing. 
Look at your great discovery. Look at all the great discoveries. Where are they leading to? Way back to my poor dear old father's ideas and discoveries. He's been dead now over forty years. Oh, it's very interesting. Well, there's nothing like progress, is there? Don't misunderstand me, my boy. I'm not belittling your discovery. Most discoveries are made regularly every fifteen years, and it's fully a hundred and fifty since yours was made last. That's something to be proud of. But your discovery's not new. It's only inoculation. My father practised inoculation until it was made criminal in 1840. That broke the poor old man's heart, Collie. He died of it. And now it turns out that my father was right after all. You brought us back to inoculation. I know nothing about smallpox. My line is tuberculosis and typhoid and plague. But of course the principle of all vaccines is the same. Tuberculosis? Mm-hmm. You've found out how to cure consumption, eh? I believe so. Ah, yes. It's very interesting. What is it the old cardinal says in Browning's play? I have known four-and-twenty leaders of revolt. Well, I've known over thirty men that found out how to cure consumption. Why do people go and dying of it, Cully? Devilment, I suppose. There was my father's old friend, George Boddington, of Sutton Coldfield. He discovered the open-air cure in 1840. He was ruined and driven out of his practice for only opening the windows, and now we won't let a consumptive patient have as much as a roof over his head. Oh, it's very, very interesting to an old man. You old cynic, you don't believe a bit in my discovery. No, no. I don't go quite as far as that, Cully. But still, you remember Jane Marsh? Jane Marsh? No. You don't? No. You mean to tell me you don't remember the woman with the tuberculosis ulcer on her arm? Oh, your washerwoman's daughter. Was her name Jane Marsh? I forgot. Perhaps you've forgotten also that you undertook to cure her with Cox's tuberculin. And instead of curing her, it rotted her arm right off. Yes, I remember. Poor Jane. However, she makes a good living out of that arm now by showing it at medical lectures. Still, that wasn't quite what you intended, was it? I took my chance of it. Jane did, you mean. Well, it's always the patient who has to take the chance when an experiment is necessary. And we can find out nothing without experiment. What did you find out from Jane's case? I found out that the inoculation that ought to cure sometimes kills. I could have told you that. I've tried these modern inoculations a bit myself. I've killed people with them, and I've cured people with them. But I gave them up because I could never tell which I was going to do. Ridgen, taking a pamphlet from a drawer in the writing-table and handing it to him. Read that the next time you have an hour to spare, and you'll find out why. Sir Patrick, grumbling and fumbling for his spectacles. Oh, bother your pamphlets. What's the practice of it? Looking at the pamphlet. Obsinin? What the devil is obsinin? Obsinin is what you butter the disease germs with to make your white blood corpuscles eat them. That's not new. I've heard this notion that the white corpuscles... What is it that what's his name? Mechnikov, cause them. Phagocytes. Aye, phagocytes, yes, yes, yes. 
Well, I've heard this theory that the phagocytes eat up the disease germs years ago, long before you came into fashion. Besides, they don't always eat them. They do when you butter them with obstinin. Gammon. No, it's not gammon. What it comes to in practice is this. The phagocytes won't eat the microbes unless the microbes are nicely buttered for them. Well, the patient manufactures the butter for himself, all right, but my discovery is that the manufacture of that butter, which I call opsonin, goes on in the system by ups and downs, nature being always rhythmical, you know, and that what the inoculation does is to stimulate the ups or downs, as the case may be. If we had inoculated Jane Marsh when her butter factory was on the upgrade, we should have cured her arm. But we got in on the downgrade and lost her arm for her. I call the upgrade the positive phase and the downgrade the negative phase. Everything depends on your inoculating at the right moment. Inoculate when the patient is in the negative phase, and you kill. Inoculate when the patient is in the positive phase, and you cure. And pray, how are you to know whether the patient is in the positive or the negative phase? Send a drop of the patient's blood to the laboratory at St. Anne's, and in fifteen minutes I'll give you his opsonin index and figures. If the figure is one, inoculate and cure. If it's under point eight, inoculate and kill. That's my discovery, the most important that has been made since Harvey discovered the circulation of the blood. My tuberculosis patients don't die now. And mine do, when my inoculation catches them in the negative phase, as you call it. Eh? Precisely. To inject a vaccine into a patient without first testing his opsonin is as near murder as a respectable practitioner can get. If I wanted to kill a man, I should kill him that way. Emmy, looking in. Will you see a lady that wants her husband's lungs cured? No, haven't I told you I will see nobody? To Sir Patrick. I live in a state of siege ever since it got about that I'm a magician who can cure consumption with a drop of serum. To Emmy. Don't come to me again about people who have no appointments. I tell you, I can see nobody. Well, I'll tell her to wait a bit. You'll tell her I can't see her and send her away, do you hear? Well, will you see Mr. Cutler Walpole? He don't want a cure. He only wants to congratulate you. Of course. Show him up. She turns to go. Stop. To Sir Patrick. I want two minutes more with you between ourselves. Emmy, ask Mr. Walpole to wait just two minutes while I finish a consultation. Oh, he'll wait all right. He's talking to the poor lady. She goes out. Well, what is it? Don't laugh at me. I want your advice. Professional advice? Yes, there's something the matter with me. I don't know what it is. Neither do I. I suppose you've been sounded. Yes, of course. There's nothing wrong with any of the organs, nothing special anyhow. But I have a curious aching. I don't know where. I can't localize it. Sometimes I think it's my heart. Sometimes I suspect my spine. It doesn't exactly hurt me, but it unsettles me completely. I feel that something is going to happen. And there are other symptoms. Scraps of tunes come into my head that seem to me very pretty, though they're quite commonplace. Do you hear voices? No. I'm glad of that. When my patients tell me they've made a greater discovery than Harvey, and that they hear voices, I look him up. You think I'm mad. 
that's just the suspicion that has come across me once or twice tell me the truth i can bear it you're sure there are no voices quite sure then it's only foolishness have you ever met anything like it before in your practice oh yes often it's very common between the ages of seventeen and twenty-two it sometimes comes on again at forty or thereabouts you're a bachelor you see it's not serious if you're careful about my food no about your behaviour there's nothing wrong with your spine and there's nothing wrong with your heart but there's something wrong with your common sense you're not going to die but you may be going to make a fool of yourself so be careful i see you don't believe in my discovery well sometimes i don't believe in it myself thank you all the same shall we have walpole up oh have him up ridgeon rings he's a clever operator is walpole though he's only one of your chloroform surgeons in my early days you made your man drunk and the porters and students held him down then you had to set your teeth and finish the job fast nowadays you work at your ease and the pain doesn't come until afterwards when you've taken your cheque and rolled up your bag and left the house i tell you cully chloroform has done a lot of mischief it's enabled every fool to be a surgeon ridgeon to emmy who answers the bell show mr walpole up he's talking to the lady did i not tell you emmy goes out without heeding him he gives it up with a shrug and plants himself with his back to the console leaning resignedly against it i know your cutler whirlpools and they like they've found out that a man's body's full of bits and scraps of old organs he has no mortal use for thanks to chloroform you can cut half a dozen of them out without leaving him any the worse except for the illness and the guineas it costs him i knew the whirlpools well fifteen years ago the father used to snip off the ends of people's uvulas for fifty guineas and paint their throats with caustic every day for a year two guineas a time his brother-in-law extirpated tonsils at two hundred guineas until he took up women's cases at double the fees goodley himself worked hard at anatomy to find something fresh to operate on and at last he caught hold of something he calls the nuciform sack which he's made quite the fashion people pay him five hundred guineas to cut it out they might as well get their hair cut for all the difference it makes but i suppose they feel important after it you can't go out to dinner now without your neighbour bragging to you of some useless operation or other mr cutler walpole she goes out cutler walpole is an energetic unhesitating man of forty with a cleanly modelled face very decisive and symmetrical about the shortish, salient, rather pretty nose, and the three trimly turned corners made by his chin and jaws. In comparison with Ridgeon's delicate broken lines, and Sir Patrick's softly rugged aged ones, his face looks machine-made and beeswaxed, but his scrutinizing, daring eyes give it life and force. He seems never at a loss, never in doubt one feels that if he made a mistake he would make it thoroughly and firmly. He has neat, well-nourished hands, short arms, and is built for strength and compactness rather than for height. He is smartly dressed with a fancy waistcoat, a richly coloured scarf secured by a handsome ring, ornaments on his watch-chain, 
spats on his shoes, and a general air of the well-to-do sportsman about him. He goes straight across to Ridgeon, and shakes hands with him. "'My dear Ridgeon, best wishes, heartiest congratulations. You deserve it.' "'Thank you.' "'As a man, mind you. You deserve it as a man. The Opsonin is simple rot, as any capable surgeon can tell you. But we're all delighted to see your personal qualities officially recognised. Sir Patrick, how are you? I sent you a paper lately about a little thing I invented—a new saw for shoulder-blades." "'Yes, I got it. It's a good saw. A useful, handy instrument." "'I knew you'd see its points.' "'Yes. I remember that saw sixty-five years ago.' "'What?' "'It was called a cabinet-maker's jimmy, then.' "'Get out! Nonsense! Cabinet-maker be—' "'Never mind him, Walpole. He's jealous.' "'By the way, I hope I'm not disturbing you two in anything private.' "'No, no. Sit down. I was only consulting him. I'm rather out of sorts. Overwork, I suppose.' "'I know what's the matter with you. I can see it in your complexion. I can feel it in the grip of your hand.' "'What is it?' "'Blood poisoning.' "'Blood poisoning? Impossible.' I tell you, blood poisoning. Ninety-five per cent of the human race suffer from chronic blood poisoning, and die of it. It's as simple as A, B, C. Your nuciform sac is full of decaying matter—undigested food and waste products, rank tomains. Now you take my advice, Ridgeon. Let me cut it out for you. You'll be another man afterwards." "'Don't you like him as he is?' "'No, I don't.' I don't like any man who hasn't a healthy circulation. I tell you this, in an intelligently governed country people wouldn't be allowed to go about with nuciform sacs making themselves centres of infection. The operation ought to be compulsory. It's ten times more important than vaccination." "'Have you had your own sac removed, may I ask?' "'I haven't got one. Look at me. I've no symptoms. I'm as sound as a bell. About five per cent of the population haven't got any, and I'm one of the five per cent. I'll give you an instance. You know Mrs. Jack Foljam, the smart Mrs. Foljam? I operated at Easter on her sister-in-law, Lady Gorin, and found she had the biggest sack I ever saw. It held about two ounces. Well, Mrs. Foljam had the right spirit, the genuine hygienic instinct. She couldn't stand her sister-in-law being a clean, sound woman, and she's simply a whited sepulchre. So she insisted on my operating on her, too. And by George, sir, she hadn't any sack at all—not a trace, not a rudiment. I was so taken aback, so interested, that I forgot to take the sponges out and was stitching them up inside her when the nurse missed them. Somehow I'd made sure she'd have an exceptionally large one. He sits down on the couch, squaring his shoulders and shooting his hands out of his cuffs as he sets his knuckles akimbo. Emmy, looking in. Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington. A long and expectant pause follows this announcement. All look to the door, but there is no Sir Ralph. Where is he? Ah, drat him! I thought he was following me. He stayed down to talk to that lady. I told you to tell that lady. Emmy vanishes. Walpole, jumping up again. Oh, by the way, Ridgeon, that reminds me. I've been talking to that poor girl. It's her husband, and she thinks it's a case of consumption. The usual wrong diagnosis. 
These damned general practitioners ought never to be allowed to touch a patient except under the orders of a consultant. She's been describing his symptoms to me, and the case is as plain as a pikestaff. Bad blood poisoning. Now she's poor. She can't afford to have him operated on. Well, you send him to me. I'll do it for nothing. There's room for him in my nursing home. I'll put him straight and feed him up and make him happy. I like making people happy. He goes to the chair near the window. Here he is. Sir Rafe Bloomfield Bonington wafts himself into the room. He is a tall man, with a head like a tall and slender egg. He has been in his time a slender man, but now, in his sixth decade, his waistcoat has filled out somewhat. His fair eyebrows arch good-naturedly and uncritically. He has a most musical voice. His speech is a perpetual anthem, and he never tires of the sound of it. He radiates an enormous self-satisfaction. Cheering, reassuring, healing by the mere incompatibility of disease or anxiety with his welcome presence. Even broken bones, it is said, have been known to unite at the sound of his voice. He is a born healer, as independent of mere treatment and skill as any Christian scientist. When he expands into oratory or scientific exposition, he is as energetic as Walpole. But it is with a bland, voluminous, atmospheric energy which envelops its subject and its audience, and makes interruption or inattention impossible, and imposes veneration and credulity on all but the strongest minds. He is known in the medical world as Beebe, and the envy roused by his success in practice is softened by the conviction that he is, scientifically considered, a colossal humbug. The fact being that, though he knows just as much, and just as little, as his contemporaries, the qualifications that pass muster in common men reveal their weakness when hung on his egregious personality. Aha! Sir Colenso, Sir Colenso, eh? Welcome to the Order of Knighthood. Shaking hands. Thank you, Bibi. What, Sir Patrick, and how are we today? A little chilly, a little stiff, but hale and still the cleverest of us all. What, Walpole, the absent-minded beggar, eh? What does that mean? Have you forgotten the lovely opera singer I sent you to have that growth taken off her vocal cords? Great heavens, man, you don't mean to say you sent her for a throat operation. Ha, 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 ha! Ah, you removed her nuciform sac. Well, well, force of habit, force of habit. Never mind, never mind. She got back her voice after it, and thinks you the greatest surgeon alive. And so you are, so you are, so you are. Blood poisoning. I see, I see. And how is a certain distinguished family get none under your care, Sir Ralph? Our friend Ridgeon will be gratified to hear that I have tried his Opsonin treatment on little Prince Henry with complete success. But how? I suspected typhoid. The head gardener's boy had it, so I just called at St. Anne's one day and got a tube of your very excellent serum. You are out, unfortunately. I hope they explained to you carefully. Lord bless you, my dear fellow. I didn't need any explanations. I left my wife in the carriage at the door, and I'd no time to be taught my business by your young chaps. I know all about it. I've handled these antitoxins ever since they first came out. But they're not antitoxins, and they're dangerous unless you use them at the right time. 
Of course they are. Everything is dangerous unless you take it at the right time. An apple at breakfast does you good. An apple at bedtime upsets you for a week. There are only two rules for antitoxins. First, don't be afraid of them. Second, inject them a quarter of an hour before meals three times a day. Great heavens, Bibi! No, no, no! Yes, 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 Kali. The proof of the pudding is in the eating, you know. It was an immense success. It acted like magic on the little prince. Up went his temperature, off to bed I packed him, and in a week he was all right again and absolutely immune from typhoid for the rest of his life. The family were very nice about it. Their gratitude was quite touching, but I said they owed it all to you, Ridgeon, and I'm glad to think that your knighthood is the result. I am deeply obliged to you. Overcome, he sits down on the chair near the couch. Not at all, not at all. Your own merit. Come, 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 don't give way. It's nothing. I was a little giddy just now. Overwork, I suppose. Blood poisoning. Overwork? There is no such thing. I do the work of ten men. Am I giddy? No, no. If you're not well, you have a disease. It may be a slight one, but it's a disease. And what is a disease? The lodgment in the system of a pathogenic germ and the multiplication of that germ. What is the remedy? A very simple one. Find the germ and kill it. Suppose there's no germ. Impossible, Sir Patrick. There must be a germ, else how could the patient be ill? Can you show me the germ of overwork? No, but why? Why? Because, my dear Sir Patrick, though the germ is there, it's invisible. Nature has given it no danger signal for us. These germs, these bacilli, are translucent bodies, like glass, like water. To make them visible, you must stain them. Well, my dear Patty, do what you will. Some of them won't stain. They won't take cochineal. They won't take methylene blue. They won't take gentian violet. They won't take any coloring matter. Consequently, though we know, as scientific men, that they exist, we cannot see them. But can you disprove their existence? Can you conceive the disease existing without them? Can you, for instance, show me a case of diphtheria without the bacillus? No, but I'll show you the same bacillus without the disease in your own throat. No, not the same, Sir Patrick. It is an entirely different bacillus. Only the two are, unfortunately, so exactly alike that you cannot see the difference. You must understand, my dear Sir Patrick, that every one of these interesting little creatures has an imitator. Just as men imitate each other, germs imitate each other. There is the genuine diphtheria bacillus discovered by Lofer, and there is the pseudo-bacillus exactly like it, which you could find, as you say, in my own throat. And how do you tell one from the other? Well, obviously. If the bacillus is the genuine loafer, you have diphtheria. And if it's the pseudo-bacillus, you're quite well. Nothing simpler. Science is always simple and always profound. It is only the half-truths that are dangerous. Ignorant faddists pick up some superficial information about germs, and they write to the papers and try to discredit science. They dupe and mislead many honest and worthy people. But science has a perfect answer to them 
on every point. A little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep, or taste not the Pierian spring. I mean no disrespect to your generation, Sir Patrick. Some of you old stagers did marvels through sheer professional intuition and clinical experience, but when I think of the average men of your day, ignorantly bleeding and cupping and purging and scattering germs over their patients from their clothes and instruments, and contrast all that with the scientific certainty and simplicity of my treatment of the little prince the other day, I can't help being proud of my own generation, the men who were trained on the germ theory, the veterans of the great struggle over evolution in the seventies. We may have our faults, but at least we are men of science. That is why I am taking up your treatment, Ridgeon, and pushing it. It's scientific. He sits down on the chair near the couch. A Dr. Blenkinsop. Dr. Blenkinsop is a very different case from the others. He is clearly not a prosperous man. He is flabby and shabby, cheaply fed and cheaply clothed. He has the lines made by a conscience between his eyes, and the lines made by continual money-worries all over his face, cut all the deeper as he has seen better days, and hails his well-to-do colleagues as their contemporary and old hospital friend, though even in this he has to struggle with the diffidence of poverty and relegation to the poorer middle class. How are you, Blenkinsop? I've come to offer my humble congratulations. Oh, dear! All the great guns are before me. How do you do, Blenkinsop? How do you do? And Sir Patrick, too. Mm. You've met Walpole, of course. How do you do? It's the first time I've had that honor. In my poor little practice there are no chances of meeting you great men. I, I know nobody but the St. Anne's men of my own day. And so... Your Sir Colenso, how does it feel? Foolish at first. Don't take any notice of it. I'm ashamed to say I haven't a notion what your great discovery is. Uh, but I congratulate you all the same, for the sake of old times. But, my dear Blenkinsop, you used to be rather keen on science. I used to be a lot of things. I used to have two or three decent suits of clothes and flannels to go up the river on Sundays. Look at me now. This is my best and it must last till Christmas. Oh, what can I do? I haven't opened a book since I was qualified thirty years ago. Oh, I used to read the medical papers at first, but you know how soon a man drops that. Besides, I can't afford them. And what are they, after all, but trade papers, full of advertisements? I've forgotten all my science. What's the use of pretending I haven't? But I have great experience, clinical experience. And bedside experience is the main thing, isn't it? No doubt. Always provided, mind you, that you have a sound scientific theory to correlate your observations at the bedside. Mere experience by itself is nothing. If I take my dog to the bedside with me, he sees what I see, but he learns nothing from it. Why? Because he's not a scientific dog. It amuses me to hear you physicians and general practitioners talking about clinical experience. What do you see at the bedside but the outside of the patient? Well, it isn't his outside that's wrong, except perhaps in skin cases. What you want is a daily familiarity with people's insides, and that you can only get at the operating table. I know what I'm talking about. I've been a surgeon and consultant for twenty years, 
and I've never known a general practitioner write in his diagnosis yet. Bring them a perfectly simple case, and they diagnose cancer and arthritis and appendicitis and every other itis, when any really experienced surgeon could see that it's a plain case of blood poisoning. Now it's easy for you gentlemen to talk, but what would you say if you had my practice? Except for the workmen's clubs, my patients are all clerks and shopmen. They daren't be ill. They can't afford it. And when they break down, what can I do for them? You can send your people to San Moritz or to Egypt. Champagne jelly or complete change and rest for six months. I might as well order my people a slice of the moon. And the worst of it is, I'm too poor to keep well myself on the cooking I have to put up with. I've such a wretched digestion. And I look it. How am I to inspire confidence? He sits disconsolately on the couch. Don't, Blankensop, it's too painful. The most tragic thing in the world is a sick doctor. Yes, by George. It's like a bald-headed man trying to sell a hair restorer. Thank God I'm a surgeon. I am never sick. Never had a day's illness in my life. That's what enables me to sympathize with my patients. What? You're never ill? Never. That's interesting. I believe you have no nuciform sac. If you ever do feel at all queer, I should very much like to have a look. Thank you, my dear fellow, but I'm too busy just now. I was just telling them when you came in, Blankensop, that I have worked myself out of sorts. Well, it seems presumptuous of me to offer a prescription to a great man like you, but still, I have great experience, and if I might recommend a pound of ripe greengages every day, half an hour before lunch, I'm sure you'd find a benefit. They're very cheap. What do you say to that, B.B.? Very sensible, Blenkinsop, very sensible indeed. I am delighted to see that you disapprove of drugs. Mm. Aha, aha. Did I hear from the fireside armchair, the bow-wow of the old school defending its drugs? Ah, believe me, Patty, the world would be healthier if every chemist's shop in England were demolished. Look at the papers, full of scandalous advertisements of patent medicines, a huge commercial system of quackery and poison. Well, whose fault is it? Ours, I say. Ours. We set the example. We spread the superstition. We taught the people to believe in bottles of doctor stuff, and now they buy it at the stores instead of consulting a medical man. Quite true. I've not prescribed a drug for the last fifteen years. Drugs can only repress symptoms. They cannot eradicate disease. The true remedy for all diseases is nature's remedy. Nature and science are at one, Sir Patrick, believe me, though you were taught differently. Nature has provided, in the white corpuscles, as you call them, in the phagocytes, as we call them, a natural means of devouring and destroying all disease germs. There is at bottom only one genuinely scientific treatment for all diseases, and that is to stimulate the phagocytes. Stimulate the phagocytes. Drugs are a delusion. Find the germ of the disease, prepare from it a suitable antitoxin, inject it three times a day, quarter of an hour before meals, and what is the result? The phagocytes are stimulated, they devour the disease. 
and the patient recovers, unless, of course, he's too far gone. That, I take it, is the essence of Riggins' discovery. As I sit here, I seem to hear me poor old father talking again. Your father? But, Lord, bless my soul, Patty, your father must have been an older man than you. Word for word, almost, he said what you say. No more drugs. Nothing but inoculation. Inoculation? Do you mean smallpox inoculation? Yes. In the privacy of our family circle, sir, my father used to declare his belief that smallpox inoculation was good, not only for smallpox, but for all fevers. What? Ridgeon, did you hear that? Sir Patrick, I am more struck by what you have just told me than I can well express. Your father, sir, anticipated a discovery of my own. Listen, Walpole. Blenkinsop, attend one moment. You will all be intensely interested in this. I was put on the track by accident. I had a typhoid case and a tetanus case side by side in the hospital, a beetle and a city missionary. Think of what that meant for them, poor fellows. Can a beetle be dignified with typhoid? Can a missionary be eloquent with lockjaw? No, no. Well, I got some typhoid antitoxin from Ridgeon and a tube of Muldooney's anti-tetanus serum, but the missionary jerked all my things off the table in one of his paroxysms, and in replacing them I put Ridgeon's tube where Muldooney's ought to have been. The consequence was that I inoculated the typhoid case for tetanus and the tetanus case for typhoid. Well, they recovered. They recovered, except for a touch of St. Vitus's dance the missionaries as well today as ever, and the beetle's ten times the man he was. I've known things like that happen. They can't be explained. Blenkinsop, there is nothing that cannot be explained by science. What did I do? Did I fold my hands helplessly and say that the case could not be explained? By no means. I sat down and used my brains. I thought the case out on scientific principles. I asked myself, why didn't the missionary die of typhoid on top of tetanus, and the beetle of tetanus on top of typhoid? There's a problem for you, Ridgeon. Thanks, Sir Patrick. Reflect, Blenkinsop. Look at it without prejudice, Walpole. What is the real work of the antitoxin? Simply to stimulate the phagocytes. Very well, but so long as you stimulate the phagocytes, what does it matter which particular sort of serum you use for the purpose? Ha <laughs> ha! Eh, do you see? Do you grasp it? Ever since then I've used all sorts of antitoxins absolutely indiscriminately, with perfectly satisfactory results. I inoculated the little prince with your stuff, Ridgeon, because I wanted to give you a lift. But two years ago I tried the experiment of treating a scarlet fever case with a sample of hydrophobia serum from the Pasteur Institute, and it answered capitally. It stimulated the phagocytes, and the phagocytes did the rest. That is why Sir Patrick's father found that inoculation cured all fevers. It stimulated the phagocytes. Mr. Walpole, your motor's come for you. And it's frightening Sir Patrick's horses, so come along quick. Goodbye, Ridgeon. 
Good-bye, and many thanks. You see my point, Walpole? He can't wait, Sir Ralph. The carriage will be into the area if he don't come. I'm coming. There's nothing in your point. Phagocytosis is pure rot. The cases are all blood-poisoning, and the knife is the real remedy. Bye-bye, Sir Paddy. Happy to have met you, Mr. Blenkinsop. Now, Emmy. He goes out, followed by Emmy. Walpole has no intellect, a mere surgeon. Wonderful operator, but, after all, what is operating? Only manual labor. Brain, brain remains master of the situation. The nuciform sac is utter nonsense. There's no such organ. It's a mere accidental kink in the membrane, occurring in perhaps two and a half percent of the population. Of course I'm glad for Walpole's sake that the operation is fashionable, for he's a dear good fellow, and after all, as I always tell people, the operation will do them no harm. Indeed, I've known the nervous shake-up and the fortnight in bed do people a lot of good after a hard London season. But still, it's a shocking fraud. Well, I must be toddling. Good-bye, Patty. Good-bye, 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 my dear Blenkinsop. Good-bye. Good-bye, Ridgeon. Don't fret about your health. You know what to do. If your liver is sluggish, a little mercury never does any harm. If you feel restless, try bromide. If that doesn't answer, a stimulant, you know, a little phosphorus and strychnine. If I can't sleep, trional, trional, tr— But no drugs, Collie, remember that. Certainly not. Quite right, Sir Patrick. As temporary expedients, of course. But as treatment, no, no. Keep away from the chemist shop, my dear Ridgeon, whatever you do. I will. And thank you for the knighthood. Good-bye. By the way, uh, who's your patient? Who? Downstairs. Charming woman. Tuberculous husband. Is she there still? Come on, Sir Ralph. Your wife's waiting in the carriage. Oh, good-bye. He goes out almost precipitately. Emmy, is that woman there still? If so, tell her once for all that I can't and won't see her. Do you hear? Oh, she ain't in a hurry. She doesn't mind how long she waits. She goes out. I must be off, too. Every half hour I spend away from my work costs me eighteenpence. Uh, good-bye, Sir Patrick. Good-bye. Good-bye. Come to lunch with me some day this week. I can't afford it, dear boy. And it would put me off my own food for a week. Thank you all the same. Can I do nothing for you? Well, if you have an old frock coat to spare. You see, what would be an old one for you would be a new one for me. So, remember the next time you turn out your wardrobe. Goodbye. He hurries out. Poor chap. Turning to Sir Patrick. So, that's why they made me a knight. And that's the medical profession. And a very good profession, too, my lad, when you know as much as I know of the ignorance and superstition of the patients. You'll wonder that we're half as good as we are. We're not a profession. We're a conspiracy. All professions are conspiracies against the laity. And we can't all be geniuses like you. Every fool can get ill, but every fool can't be a good doctor. There are not enough good ones to go round, 
and for all you know, Bloomfield Bonington kills less people than you do. Oh, very likely. But he really ought to know the difference between a vaccine and an antitoxin. Stimulate the phagocytes. The vaccine doesn't affect the phagocytes at all. He's all wrong, hopelessly, dangerously wrong. To put a tube of serum into his hands is murder, simple murder. Now, sir, Patrick, how long more are you going to keep them horses standing in the drought? What's that to you, you old catamaran? Oh, come, come now. None of your temper to me. And it's time for Collie to get to his work. Behave yourself, Emmy. Get out. I learned how to behave myself before I learned you to do it. I know what doctors are, sitting, talking together about themselves when they ought to be with their poor patients. And I know what horses are, Sir Patrick. I was brought up in the country. Now be good and come along. Very well, very well, very well. Goodbye, Cully. He pats Ridgen on the shoulder and goes out turning for a moment at the door to look meditatively at Emmy, and say with grave conviction, "'You are an ugly old devil, and no mistake.' "'You're no beauty yourself! They've no manners. They think they can say what they like to me, and you set them on, you do. I'll teach them their places. Here now, are you going to see that poor thing, or are you not?' I tell you, for the fiftieth time, I won't see anybody. Send her away. Oh, I'm tired of being told to send her away. What good will that do her? Must I get angry with you, Emmy? Come now. Just see her for a minute to please me. There's a good boy. She's given me half a crown. She thinks it's life and death to her husband for her to see you. Values her husband's life at half a crown. Well, it's all she can afford, poor lamb. Them others think nothing of half a sovereign just to talk about themselves to you, the sluts. Besides, she'll put you in a good temper for the day, because it's a good deed to see her, and she's the sort that gets round you. Well, she hasn't done so badly. For half a crown she's had a consultation with Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington and Cutler Walpole. That's six guineas worth to start with. I dare say she's consulted Blankensop, too. That's another eighteen pence. Then you'll see her for me, won't you? Oh, send her up and be hanged. Emmy trots out, satisfied. Redpenny. Redpenny, appearing at the door. What is it? There's a patient coming up. If she hasn't gone in five minutes, come in with an urgent call from the hospital for me. You understand? She's to have a strong hint to go. Right-o. He vanishes. Ridgeon goes to the glass and arranges his tie a little. A Mrs. Dubedad. Ridgeon leaves the glass and goes to the writing-table. The lady comes in. Emmy goes out and shuts the door. Ridgeon, who has put on an impenetrable and rather distant professional manner, turns to the lady and invites her by a gesture to sit down on the couch. Mrs. Dubedat is beyond all demur, an arrestingly good-looking young woman. She has something of the grace and romance of a wild creature, with a good deal of the elegance and dignity of a fine lady. Ridgeon, who is extremely susceptible to the beauty of women, instinctively assumes the defensive at once, and hardens his manner still more. 
He has an impression that she is very well dressed, but she has a figure on which any dress would look well, and carries herself with the unaffected distinction of a woman who has never in her life suffered from those doubts and fears as to her social position which spoil the manners of most middling people. She is tall, slender, and strong, has dark hair, dressed so as to look like hair and not like a bird's nest or a pantaloon's wig, fashion wavering just then between these two models, has unexpectedly narrow, subtle, dark-fringed eyes that alter her expression disturbingly when she is excited, and flashes them wide open, is softly impetuous in her speech, and swift in her movements, and is just now in mortal anxiety. She carries a portfolio. Doctor. Wait. Before you begin, let me tell you at once that I can do nothing for you. My hands are full. I sent you that message by my old servant. You would not take that answer. How could I? You bribed her. I— That doesn't matter. She coaxed me to see you. Well, you must take it from me now that with all the good will in the world I cannot undertake another case. Doctor, you must save my husband. You must. When I explain to you, you will see that you must. It is not an ordinary case, not like any other case. He is not like anybody else in the world. Oh, believe me, he is not. I can prove it to you. I have brought some things to show you. And you can save him. The papers say you can. What's the matter? Tuberculosis? Yes. His left lung. Yes, you needn't tell me about that. You can cure him, if only you will. It is true that you can, isn't it? Oh, tell me, please. You are going to be quiet and self-possessed, aren't you? Yes. I, I beg your pardon. I know I shouldn't. Oh, please, say that you can, and then I shall be all right. I am not a cure-monger. If you want cures, you must go to the people who sell them. But I have at the hospital ten tuberculous patients whose lives I believe I can save. Thank God. Wait a moment. Try to think of those ten patients as ten shipwrecked men on a raft, a raft that is barely large enough to save them, that will not support one more. Another head bobs up through the waves at the side. Another man begs to be taken aboard. He implores the captain of the raft to save him. But the captain can only do that by pushing one of his ten off the raft and drowning him to make room for the newcomer. That is what you are asking me to do. But how can that be? I don't understand. Surely— You must take my word for it that it is so. My laboratory, my staff, and myself are working at full pressure. We are doing our utmost. The treatment is a new one. It takes time, means, and skill, and there is not enough for another case. Our ten cases are already chosen cases. Do you understand what I mean by chosen? Chosen? No. I can't understand. You must understand. You've got to understand and to face it. In every single one of those ten cases I have had to consider not only whether the man could be saved, but whether he was worth saving. There were fifty cases to choose from, and forty had to be condemned to death. Some of the forty had young wives and helpless children. If the hardness of their cases could have saved them, they would have been saved ten times over. I've no doubt your case is a hard one. I can see the tears in your eyes. I know that you have a torrent of entreaties ready for me the moment I stop speaking, but it's no use. You must go to another doctor. 
But can you give me the name of another doctor who understands your secret? I have no secret. I am not a quack. I beg your pardon. I didn't mean to say anything wrong. I don't understand how to speak to you. Oh, pray, don't be offended. There, there, never mind. After all, I'm talking nonsense. I dare say I am a quack, a quack with a qualification. But my discovery is not patented. Then can any doctor cure my husband? Oh, why don't they do it? I have tried so many. I have spent so much. If only you would give me the name of another doctor. Every man in this street is a doctor. But outside myself and the handful of men I am training at St. Anne's, there is nobody as yet who has mastered the opsonin treatment, and we are full up. I'm sorry, but that is all I can say. Good morning. Mrs. Dubedat, suddenly and desperately taking some drawings from her portfolio. Doctor, look at these. You understand drawings. You have good ones in your waiting-room. Look at them. They are his work. It's no use my looking. He looks all the same. Hello. He takes one to the window and studies it. Yes. This is the real thing. Yes, yes. He looks at another and returns to her. These are very clever. They're unfinished, aren't they? He gets tired so soon. But you see, don't you, what a genius he is? You see that he is worth saving. Oh, doctor, I married him just to help him to begin. I had money enough to tide him over the hard years at the beginning, to enable him to follow his inspiration until his genius was recognized. And I was useful to him as a model. His drawings of me sold quite quickly. Have you got one? Only this one. It was the first. That's a wonderful drawing. Why is it called Jennifer? My name is Jennifer. A strange name. Not in Cornwall. I'm Cornish. It's only what you call Guinevere. Guinevere. Jennifer. Yes, it's really a wonderful drawing. Excuse me, but may I ask, is it for sale? I'll buy it. Oh, take it. It's my own. He gave it to me. Take it. Take them all. Take everything. Ask anything but save him. You can. You will. You must. Redpenny, entering with every sign of alarm. They've just telephoned from the hospital that you're to come instantly. A patient on the point of death. The carriage is waiting. Oh, nonsense. Get out. What do you mean by interrupting me like this? But— Chut! Can't you see I'm engaged? Be off. Redpenny, bewildered, vanishes. Mrs. Dubedat, rising. Doctor, one instant only before you go. Sit down. It's nothing. But the patient. He said he was dying. Oh, he's dead by this time. Never mind. Sit down. Mrs. Dubedat, sitting down and breaking down. Oh, you none of you care. You see people die every day. Nonsense. It's nothing. I told him to come in and say that. I thought I should want to get rid of you. Oh. Don't look so bewildered. There's nobody dying. My husband is. Ah, yes. I had forgotten your husband. Mrs. Dubedat, you are asking me to do a very serious thing? I am asking you to save the life of a great man. You are asking me to kill another man for his sake. For as surely as I undertake another case, I shall have to hand back one of the old ones to the ordinary treatment. Well, I don't shrink from that. I've had to do it before, and I will do it again, if you can convince me that his life is more important than the worst life I am now saving. But you must convince me first. He made those drawings, and they are not the best, nothing like the best. 
Only I did not bring the really best. So few people like them. He is twenty-three. His whole life is before him. Won't you let me bring him to you? Won't you speak to him? Won't you see for yourself? Is he well enough to come to a dinner at the Star and Garter at Richmond? Oh, yes. Why? I'll tell you. I am inviting all my old friends to a dinner to celebrate my knighthood. You've seen about it in the papers, haven't you? Yes, oh, yes. That was how I found out about you. It will be a doctor's dinner, and it was to have been a bachelor's dinner. I'm a bachelor. Now, if you will entertain for me and bring your husband, he will meet me, and he will meet some of the most eminent men in my profession, Sir Patrick Cullen, Sir Rafe Bloomfield Bonington, Cutler Walpole, and others. I can put the case to them, and your husband will have to stand or fall by what we think of him. Will you come? Yes, of course I will come. Oh, thank you, thank you. And may I bring some of his drawings, the really good ones? Yes. I will let you know the date in the course of tomorrow. Leave me your address. Thank you again and again. You have made me so happy. I know you will admire him and like him. This is my address. She gives him her card. Thank you. He rings. May I... Is there... Should I... I mean... What's the matter? Your fee for this consultation. Oh, I forgot that. Shall we say a beautiful drawing of his favorite model for the whole treatment, including the cure? You are very generous. Thank you. I know you will cure him. Goodbye. I will. Goodbye. They shake hands. By the way, you know, don't you, that tuberculosis is catching? You take every precaution, I hope? I am not likely to forget it. They treat us like lepers at the hotels. Emmy, at the door. Well, dearie, have you got round him? Yes, attend to the door and hold your tongue. That's a good boy. She goes out with Mrs. Dubedat. Consultation free. Cure guaranteed. <sighs> End of Act One